Ed Gilbreth is an award-winning journalist and author, and uh, he is the executive editor for InterVarsity Press. That's what he currently does. He wrote this book called Reconciliation Blues. And in this book, he tells uh, about a time when this, um, this prominent Christian leader, a uh, white guy, um, just calls him up and invites him to lunch. So he says, okay, so they go to lunch. And as they're sitting down to eat lunch, this guy just starts sobbing, like he breaks down, just suddenly starts crying. And he starts saying stuff like, God has blessed me in, in so many ways, like my children are healthy, um, I'm, uh, I'm a prominent leader, I'm, I'm known throughout the country. And Ed Gilbert is thinking to himself like, what's going on here? Like, why is he telling me all this? I'm not a therapist. Well, this guy continues to, t to, to you know, tell him that he had just gotten back from this huge ministry conference um, uh, on the other side of the country. And they were there for uh, kind of like cross-cultural ministry, reconciliation uh, kind of stuff. And so the, a bunch of them got together um, and, and we're, we're talking about that kind of thing. And he said, um, Ed Gilbert, who's an African-American guy, he's like, you know, um, whenever the black leaders come into the meeting, he's like, we always make them feel at home. Uh, they always feel welcome. We, we, uh, we encourage them to be a, a part of the, the decision-making process. But he said, to be honest, the decisions are already made before they even get there. He's like, and when they leave, he's like, that's when the jokes start. A lot of these leaders will use the N-word. Um, well, this time, when all of that was going on, it's like it just didn't feel right to me. He said, uh, I got home and, I, and, I, and I, I couldn't sleep at night. And he's just sobbing now again. And he's like, I don't know what to do. Like, what do we need to do? How can we be friends? Ed Gilbreth was quiet for a moment. And then he said, hey, do you like football? And the guy was like, yeah. I said, well, I do too. I love football. He said, I used to coach football in high school and college. I've got a lot of friends who play pro. He was like, so this is what we do. He's like, you come over to my house. We'll watch a football game. I love to grill out in the backyard. We'll grill some steaks. You bring your wife. She'll get to know my wife. I need to get to know you, he said. And you definitely need to get to know me. And he said, the guy was like, you want me to come over to your house? And he's like, yeah. This is what he said. He wrote in his book. He's like, if you want me to, to sit here and clear your conscience for all the crap you did, I can't do that, he said. Friendship is not cheap. It takes time and commitment. Ed Gilbreth gave him his home phone number and said, call me. He never heard from the guy again. So Luke tells a Jesus story. Now that's our text for today. And it seems like just another day. 
at, at least the way that, that Luke tells it. It's just another day at the office, um, another day of teaching. She's like, I'm going to go out and do some teaching. But at the end of the day, all the people are saying, we have seen some strange things today. And they had. There's so much going on in this story. We could talk about it for days. There were Pharisees sitting nearby and teachers of the law. So it's like the teachers were coming to hear Jesus teach. And I don't know if you noticed, but Luke says that these Pharisees and teachers of the law, they came from every village in Judea, um, in Galilee, even Jerusalem. Now, it was not uncommon for a a scribe, a a Pharisee or two, to be curious about Jesus and and to approach him and um, to have conversations and to have learning. But like all of them at the same time, like there's, there's something going on. Maybe like a teacher's conference or a, a minister's conference, a ministry conference. Well, Mark, in his gospel, he tells the same story. Uh, but, but he begins the story with Jesus returning home. Let me, just, let me just read. He says, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was home. So many gathered that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. Uh, and, and he was speaking the word to them. So Mark says Jesus is coming home. Like he gets back from a road trip and there's this teacher's conference uh, waiting for him in his front yard uh, and, and at his front door. And this is the scene, this is the gathering that greets these men carrying their paralyzed friend. Uh, They're they're trying to get close to Jesus, but they can't because the crowd is so big. And obviously, uh, they are not very receptive to this little band of brothers uh, cutting line. Uh, They were there for their reasons too. Well, uh, Luke says they, they, they can't find a way because of the crowds, but he also says they eventually found a way because they found the roof. Uh, So so they go up on the roof, and Luke says that they remove some of the roof tiles. Now, that's kind of a a Greco-Roman thing, and and Luke was a Greco-Roman guy. Uh, So you got to wonder if if he's putting this to the story. Roman influence was pretty widespread, and that included architecture. So it was possible that Jesus' house had a tile roof. Um, But Mark, in Mark's story, and uh, Mark was the first one to tell it, his roof is a little more indigenous. Um, It's a a roof that he says they had to dig through. These friends took their, their paralyzed friend on the mat up to the roof, and they dug through. That roof was made of, of twigs and thatch and mud. So imagine the scene. Jesus is inside of his house. It's packed and he's teaching and there's a lot of stuff going on. And all of a sudden from the ceiling, little twigs and pieces of thatch and dried mud start falling. And then a bed appears and a paralyzed man is lowered into the room and uh, is placed at Jesus's feet. 
and Jesus sees their faith, and he's moved by their faith. And then he forgives the paralyzed man's sin. Now, nothing in this story up to this point leads us to think that this man was coming to confess his sin. Like, he just wanted to walk again. But Jesus sees the faith of his friends, and he says, your sins are forgiven. And that gets the conference all riled up. They're like, wait a minute, who do you think you are? You can't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. I mean, they were upset because there was this clear process for sin forgiveness. Um, Only God can forgive sins. And the way that God did it normally was, was uh, within their system. Like, you'd go to the temple. You would offer up a sacrifice. You, you would go through the procedures and, and, and you would show the priest. Uh, there were um, festivals for this sort of thing. There were, were rituals of cleansing. And the person that was going to pronounce God's forgiveness of sin was not just some random preacher or some random person. Like it was designated. It was the priest, particularly uh, the high priest, and especially on the Day of Atonement uh, when the right sacrifices had been made. And in this conversation, Jesus uses this mysterious phrase. He talks about being the Son of Man. And probably not everybody in that crowd in the house would have picked up on this, but certainly a lot of the teachers would have. Um, In Daniel chapter 7, which would have been a passage they were all familiar with. Um, in Daniel 7, uh, it's in chapter 7, it says, One like a son of man is brought before God. And this one like a son of man, after a, a time of severe persecution, um, is given authority over the world. Now, over time, Jewish scholars and Jewish leaders um, took this, uh, uh, this phrase as a reference to the Messiah that was coming, the Christ that was coming, the one who, after Israel's long season of of hardship and suffering and persecution, uh, would usher in God's kingdom, would set things right. And so, for Jesus to use this phrase was kind of this, this, this bold claim of some serious authority. And they take issue with it. And then he heals the guy. (laughs) It's hard to argue with that. Uh, It took a small army to get the man in there. But he gets up on his own strength. He rolls up his mat. And he leaves. Now as I've lived with this story, the more mysterious thing to me is this fact that Jesus sees the faith of his friends. And it's the faith of his friends that makes something radical happen. He couldn't get there without his friends. I love what uh, a New Testament scholar Gary Charles said, guy with two first names, Gary Charles. He says, the crowd in Jesus' house provides the dilemma that four anonymous friends of an anonymous paralyzed man must solve. Unlike 
the curious crowd, their faith compels them to take radical action on behalf of their friend. And it's interesting, he says, that we, we don't know uh, about the faith of this paralyzed man or the nature of his disability or of society's disability in responding to him. There's another layer. They know only that this man's friends had faith in Jesus. That faith in Jesus leads to radical action. It's because of his friends that he was even there. There's another story in John chapter 5. Jesus is coming. Um, it's it's um, the pool of Bethesda. There's like five porticos there and... There's some mystery around this pool. It's like a healing pool, and it's believed that the Spirit stirs the waters, and if you can get into the water, you'll be healed. And there's, there's this man that's there, and he's been there a long time, lame since birth maybe, or for decades. Um, and Jesus acknowledges that, that he's been there a long time, but his question to this man that's laying beside the, the, the pool of Beth Bethesda at the Sheep Gate um, is, um, do you want to be made well? And maybe you remember the guy's response. He was like, I don't have anybody to help me. Whenever the water is stirred, I don't have any friends to help me get in. So um, for our, our pastoral post um, this week, uh, we have a, a guest writer, um, Matthew Blackburn. And so as Matthew's been preparing to, to write the article for our newsletter, um, he's brought up a lot of memories about our life together as the church, particularly Pancake Day memories. He had some questions about how things transpired, and, and it just brought back the memories of how back in 2018 in the fall, as, as a congregation, we began to, um, in, a, in a, a sermon series theme, and in a worship theme, we began to reflect on um, uh, at the table when Jesus comes for dinner. Like, the story is about what happens when, when Jesus comes and is at the table. And we begin to specifically be, begin thinking about our life together as a church. When you think about who we are and what we look like and, and our demographic. Uh, when Jesus got to the table in those stories, like it got really colorful. <laughs> He was always accused of, of eating with sinners and tax collectors and, 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 and people that were kind of on the margins and at the fringes. Well, in that season of, of life together as a church, the Pancake Day Committee was meeting to, to, to discuss uh, Pancake Day 2019. And they were moved and they were stirred and they began to say, do we have everybody at our table? It was eight bucks a plate, huge fundraiser, $30,000, maybe more. That's what we would make. So I don't know how much was spent buying the bacon and buying the pancake batter and the sausage and the syrup and the butter and all that goes with it. Thousands and thousands of people, all of Haywood County is in this place for pancake day. And they're like, what if we make it free? What if nobody had to pay anything? It was radical. And those of you who were here experienced just how radical it was, all of a sudden, everybody was at the table. And it's amazing what a plate of bacon and a, and a bottle of pancake syrup can do to jumpstart a friendship. And like it didn't stop there. Like the ministries of this church caught fire. And the things that we do for our community, it's amazing. I love 
love, love. That the people in our community know that First United Methodist Church, Waynesville, has a place called the Friendship House. We have a Friendship House. Our closing song in the awakening service today um, is this song called Reckless Love. It's one of my favorite songs. Um, it, it talks about um, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Um, you know, that God, God will uh, fight for us and uh, leave the 99 in the wilderness for us. And um, then, then there's like, um, I don't know if it's the chorus or, or some kind of bridge thing, um, you know, where it says, you know, to, we sing to God, there's, there's no shadow you won't light up. There's, there's no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. Um, there's no wall you won't kick down. There's no lie you won't tear down uh, coming after me. Like God comes after us like that. I was thinking about James Taylor's song, you know, the, the You've Got a Friend song. Like when you call out my name, uh, just know that wherever I am, I'll come running to see you again. Winter, spring, summer, and fall. All you have to do is call. Um, you know you've got a friend. And you know, kind of song kind of ends like, ain't it good to know you've got a friend? And it is. But this is the thing. Not everybody has a friend. Not everybody has a, a name that they can call. There's a lot of people out there who need a friend, who need us. And so we need to grab hold of the corner of the mat. We need to tear a hole in the roof. Because on the other side of it, there's healing and there's wholeness. God is there. Amen.